I would say that there is strong evidence, really strong evidence on the um, health effects of mm -hmm. energy poverty. Um, so that people tend to be not as, as healthy <laughs> if they're energy poor, both from a physical perspective and from a mental health perspective. Mm -hmm that those two aspects of people's lives do tend to be really affected. Um, so in the research, it's very present, but maybe not so much in, in some of the policy discourse around it. Welcome to City Stories, the podcast by Energy Cities. I'm Miriam Eisenman and I'm your host. This podcast is for those who want to learn how cities go about with the energy transition, how they take action with courage and creativity. You will have heard it in the news. From Spain to the UK, all over Europe, energy prices are currently soaring. And the impact it will have on poverty will be huge. That is also why in this City Stories episode, we talk with Lucy Middlemiss about who the energy poor are, why they should be involved in finding the right answers, but also how she thinks research can help improve energy poverty policies in cities. Lucy is professor at the University of Leeds, and she has an impressive track record of energy poverty research with that particular focus on what is called the lived experience approach. Hey Lucy, it's a pleasure having you on City Stories. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Everybody's talking about the energy transition and we now start also talking slowly about the just transition. But the topic of energy poverty still remains a bit of a niche. So um, you've been working on energy poverty for quite a while now. Where and when did your interest for this topic start? Oh, it's funny you should say it was a niche, <laughs> um, because in a way I think it's really at the heart of the just transition. It's what we it's it's what we need to think about in order to do a good just transition. So, I I started thinking about it probably about ten years ago. I got involved in um, I, well, I've always done research on sustainable consumption, so I've always had that interest in environmental issues um, ever since I started my PhD some time ago <laughs> and then about 10 years ago I started to think about how who has access to environmental living in different ways and, and to, to notice that certain categories of people weren't getting access to kind of green living options and then um, through that work I kind of came across the fuel poverty literature that in the UK so there's people work we, we call it fuel po poverty in the UK And started to think, yeah, they're, they're, this is a, this is effectively a category of people who who don't have access to enough resources, actually. Um, and I mean, obviously, we we research those kinds of people in other countries very often, but within the EU, we've got loads of people who are energy poor and who don't have access to enough resources. And when when you think about that, then that's they become almost like a case study of. Um, uh, people um, who who are effectively uh, suffering in one way or another because they don't have access to resources, but they're also 
um, people that really need help from the point mm. of view of, of, of energy efficiency, especially, I would say. And um, my, I guess my, my interest from a sustainability perspective is on the one hand, yes, let's make their world more efficient. But there's a very strong social justice interest as well, which is why are these people suffering? Why are these people in these rich countries that we live in um, going without these, this such yeah. an essential resource as heat or electricity or cooling? There's yeah. such essential services. Um, and um, so I guess it's a sort of mix of the environmental interest leading me into this area. And then I've always had a really strong social justice kind of um, uh, dimension to my interest and work. So that was how I got stuck in energy poverty and started to, <laughs> to think about it in a bigger way. Okay, just to make it clear, of course, it's not my opinion to think it's a niche topic. It's more I think it's just not being taken seriously enough. Um, and that's essentially why those people do not have the access that they, they deserve to, to energy or to ecological services, of course. Um, you, you yeah, already started to that. To, yeah? If you look at it, I mean, if you look at the EU and the way the EU has approached this topic, it's only just coming up in the EU. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. that does make it niche, right? But, um, I, I suppose it is niche in the sense that the, the EU, um, is starting to deal with it only now even though you know ever forever there's been people who don't have enough access to energy services um it's not niche in, niche in the context of the the idea of the just transition i think it needs to be these are the people that we need to be thinking about when we think about just transitions this population effectively interesting okay cool um and you already started kind of describing a bit what we mean by energy poor you are regularly in contact with people uh, who are in in these energy difficult situations can you draw a little picture of who they are is there a common profile oh no <laughs> really i mean i i would say the one i kind of common, expected this answer <laughs> the one common thing would be low income people on low incomes because actually i mean the distinction between poverty and energy poverty is not huge um most people on low incomes also live in in houses that are not of great quality and they're not looked after and maintained very well. Um, and then most people of low incomes will also come into other categories like um, disabled people in the EU have lower incomes than non-disabled people. Um, so you would expect to find more disabled people that are energy poor. Um, single parents, um, often female headed households, um, would, would also likely be low income. And so you'd expect to find more of them who are energy poor. Um, in the old days, there used to be a lot of talk, particularly in the UK, of older people. And older people uh, were a real concern from this perspective. Um, and it kind of depends how you measure it, whether, whether they come out as a big category or a smaller category. But I would say then there's also the sort of physiological um, uh, aspects of people's bodies and how well they can cope with different things. So um, typically the three categories that are listed in those terms are very young children. So babies and infants who can't be cold, can't be very hot. They suffer a lot. They don't have very good temperature regulation. People with disabilities who hmm. also struggle to sometimes to reg regulate temperature and then older people as well in that category. So it's I, I could name I could carry on naming categories of people. I mean, yeah. I think it, but but probably the, the common char characteristic is being on a low income or being on benefits and um, and then um, not therefore being able to access adequate energy services. 
personally, I've never been in, in contact with any energy poor person, I have to say. Um, and as I'm starting to, to dig a bit deeper into the topic, I'm interested in, uh, do you think there are any like subtle signals in, in the, uh, an energy pores communication or behavior that might um, tell me that this is a person who's, who's part of this category or who may need help? Oh, that's quite difficult. It, it, from the point of view, if you were talking to somebody in the street. Yeah, exactly. Or a neighbor, just to, to make sure, are there any things that I could see or hear or sense that would allow me to say, okay, this is maybe somebody that, that can, that could be in, who could be in that situation. And uh, in that case, I would probably be a bit more uh, self-confident in, in maybe even talking about the topic or asking some questions to to the person just to make sure he gets she or she gets the help he or she needs i think um people that struggle to pay their energy bills so if if, the, if that comes up in conversation in any way and of course we're we're entering a period at the moment where prices are really going up uh, um and um so there will be people voicing those concerns a bit more and that can be a way into a conversation um to talk about how much things have got how much thing more expensive things have got um But then, um, and then I guess also, uh, well, yes, it's difficult. It is a stigmatized condition. So mm -hmm. it's just, just as poverty is stigmatized, it's very difficult to open up about these things. Um, so just to give you an example, I, I had this, um, I had an interview a few years back with a man who'd been very rich in the past and had um, gradually spent all his savings when he got made unemployed and um Uh, as a result, when I met him, he really didn't have any spare money and he was on a very, very low income. And um, he hadn't told anyone about his circumstances. Oh. So he wasn't eating and he was, wasn't was heating either. And this was in the UK. Uh -huh. um, and he hadn't told anyone but me. And it, it was partly because I was an outsider. So I I came to talk to him at a time when when also he'd just got a job. So he felt a bit more confident in telling me this, the whole story. But it, but he hadn't told his friends and family because he was shame, he was ashamed. He was someone who had earned a lot of money and had been the big salary man, and then um, uh, was in a position, you know, a few years out, out of work, was in a position, really desperate position. And so I think um, thinking about uh, uh, talking about it can be really challenging because um, I mean it's it's almost easier as a researcher because yeah, you go into yeah. the context as the neutral outsider. Um, But at the same time, some people still won't want to talk to you in detail about the, the sorts of challenges they face because they're, they're, they're embarrassing things. Of to, course, yeah. To. And as a researcher, you might already have a certain trust bonus as well, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And there's a, well, very, very often I talk to people who know they'll never see me again. Mm. <laughs> never. And in that case, it, it, it's almost like an, an opportunity to, to download what's been going on in people's lives. So, mm. yeah. I'd like to take a moment and focus on your very specific research discipline uh, that you call the lived experience. What exactly does that mean? Can you explain a bit more? That works really well in 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 the context of what we've just been talking about. Because I mean, when I'm the, the kind of research and the findings I'm talking about only come really from sitting down with people and talking about their everyday life in a very kind of 
um, open and quite basic way. What, you know, what, how long have you been here? Where do, in this house? What do you, how, what's it like to live here? And then also very directly asking questions about energy use. And so the sorts of questions you probably can't ask your neighbour, like, you know, yeah. do you, how often do you have the heating on? Do you, um, uh, does it get cold in here? <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> so lived experience research comes from uh, poverty research more generally and, and other other forms of, of kind of emancipatory research, I suppose. Uh-huh. So um, typically you would, uh, feminists would do lived experience research. So would people who are doing anti-racist research. The idea is to really kind of get to grips with what everyday life looks like for people. And when you do that, there's a really massive value in it, because what you find out is how they're coping at the intersection of all these different kind of policies and markets. And, you know, so everybody lives within the housing market and usually buys their energy from the energy market. They also have policy from government that affects their benefits, that affects their health, um, the health services that they can access. And you don't really see the intersection of all of those, apart from when you talk to people in detail about what's going on in their lives. And then then you start to see the unintended consequences, the sort of the, the conflicts between policies in, in action or um, or just just how um, everything feels to people. You know, sometimes um, uh, it can feel to people like everything is against them. And you only get a sense of that when you're in in the room with them. And they're explaining why it feels like mm-hmm. that way and what which elements of their life are really are really challenging for them in a way. So I, I started doing this work about, like I say, about 10 years ago when when. Um, there was very little research on on qualitative research on energy poverty. There is a bit, but there wasn't very much done at that stage. And um, uh, from doing this kind of research, you also then start to look at the rest of the the evidence on this topic differently. So you start to question the the quantitative evidence uh-huh. because the quantitative evidence is always very narrow. It's it's very necessary, right? <laughs> I don't want to be crit- too critical. Uh-huh. It's very necessary and it's also very useful. We have to have quantitative indicators, but they do take a snapshot and and snapshots that sometimes are misleading. So if you ask everybody in the EU, which we do, um, how, are you able to keep your home to a comfortable temperature? The, the question is something like this. Um, loads of people say yes hardly anyone says no so the subjective experience of of energy poverty is really really limited very few people have that talk about that experience in that way and yet if you dig in with anyone experiencing fuel poverty that it it becomes clear that maybe it's not it's not that nice a thing to say about yourself or um also also maybe you don't really feel it that way but the reality is you're living in 12 degrees every day all through Mm -hmm. the winter and and from a health perspective, that's not going to be good for you. Yeah, so it, it just adds that extra richness, I suppose. Yeah, so so as a researcher, you provide really those rich data sets, both qualitative and um, quantitative. Um, and I guess you also provide them to policymakers. Um, to which extent is the policy world listening to science on, on that particular topic? Do you see any... Maybe also a change in that might have come in the past years um, regarding the topic because it has been a bit more um, has come a bit higher up on the on the especially the EU policy agenda. Yes, so in the EU, EU there's a clear shift, and I mm-hmm. suppose um, 
even five years ago, it was not so high up the agenda. But with the idea of a well, the the energy transition, and then making sure that's a just energy transition, suddenly this is a really useful indicator to have, isn't it? To know how many people are struggling in your in your nation. Um, and to give you an example, but then the pressures come from different places as well. So we did some work in the Netherlands where um, we in the Netherlands, there was a lot of action at local level, lo local sort of city level um, interests in this topic, because uh -huh. at city level, there was um, the, 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 the city level officials have responsibility for sustainability, for poverty, for um, uh, thinking about um, health issues so all those things wrapped together um you start to realize oh there's a there's a nexus here that we could uh -huh. start to, to address through addressing energy poverty um and and local level governments in the netherlands did realize that and started acting on it and um uh we we um together with with uh, who's also on the on the wealth-based project uh -huh. um and and a a team of other uh, experts, we wrote a, a white paper to suggest they needed a national policy because they didn't at the time have a national policy. Um, some governments are still very much in denial about this problem and they sort of think, oh, it's only part of poverty. It's not a separate thing, which which um, I mean, I have some sympathy with. <laughs> but at the same time, <laughs> there are there are things you can do once you do have policy, which are much more um, uh, focused. And it also really helps with the just transition policy. So since we made that intervention, we effectively wrote this white paper saying you need a national policy. They're now designing one. So oh. they're, they're in the process of putting one together. And I guess the pressure was coming from the EU saying you need to report on this. And then also from the from the local from government the saying, like, yeah, exactly. we need help. Like, we need a framework to be working within. Um, and so us intervening was a moment to say, look, folks, you, there's an obvious thing missing. It's, it's the national policy. Um, in other, I mean, in, in my country, in the UK, this is this has been a policy on the policy agenda for a long time. And it was it was raised by a woman called Brenda Boardman back in the 1980s, 1990s. Um, who did a really, I mean, she she started this whole area of interest and research. Um, but in some ways, it's it's because it's been on the agenda for such a long time, it maybe doesn't have as much momentum as, as you can see in some of the countries that are just taking up the agenda because of the EU's interests mm. or, or because their local stakeholders are, are kind of asking them to. So it, I would say I, there's nothing... Ex that exciting going on in the UK at the moment to be brutal <laughs> whereas I can see in parts of the EU there's some really exciting stuff so being in well-based is really great to be to be um, to be part of that if just a remark if someone wants to know more about uh, Brenda Boardman and the how how all started in the UK there has been a great uh, interview with her on the BBC recently so I can probably link up to that uh, in the show notes as well um Lucy, you were mentioning um, the European project WellBased. Uh, you're part of the Leeds-based team which is involved uh, in the project. And the particularity of WellBased is that it aims to tackle energy poverty from a public health perspective. Health is often ignored in, in energy poverty issues, isn't it? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say in energy poverty, really, but it's, it's one of those, it's an, a part of this agenda, which isn't always talked about, I suppose. I mean, um, you can see, so thinking about just transition from the EU's perspective, well, we need to, to make sure we look after those people who are most vulnerable. But the, the connection with health is not always as explicit as it should mm -hmm. be, I think. Um, 
so there are, because there are other concerns, right? Uh, people having low incomes, people being socially isolated. So it's it's a it's a kind of broad problem that links into a number of areas of policy like that. And I suppose, yeah, I would say that there's, there is strong evidence, really strong evidence on the um, health effects of mm-hmm. energy poverty. Um, so that people tend to be not as as healthy <laughs> if they're energy poor, both from a physical perspective and from a mental health perspective. Mm-hmm. That those two aspects of people's lives do tend to be really affected. Um, so in the research, it's very present, but maybe not so much in, in some of the policy discourse around it. Mm-hmm. When you were mentioning the, 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 who the, the energy poor are earlier, um, actually, I heard that, that this is really um, often one vulnerability comes with another one. Uh, let's say uh, you said disabled people are often the ones uh, having low incomes. I guess it's the same for single parents. Uh, and if you're a woman, that's that comes uh, in addition. Or if if you're having a certain from a certain race, you might you might be uh, confronted with racism. Um, so that makes the energy poverty topic even more complex what type of measures are most needed in that context far beyond what might traditionally be be characterized as like energy policy what what do you think i mean um we're essentially working with cities um what policy departments or what different departments should work together and what um like really concrete actions would help uh, from your perspective on the ground Well, I think that's a really good question, actually, because, I mean, the, the sort of simple answer is always energy efficiency. Let's yeah. make things more efficient. And then people have an, a permanent lowering of their of their costs, effectively. And we have climate change benefits for that as well. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the simple answer. But of course, um, it isn't always that simple. So people don't always use those energy efficient households in a way that is really energy efficient because things can be very culturally You know, there, there are in different cultures, there are requirements to use your house in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, we really noticed this when we did some work comparing Denmark and the UK. So in Denmark, there's a really strong emphasis on airing out the whole house every morning and every night. UK, not so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't, we, I mean, there's not as, as sort of strong a cultural norm to do that. And mm-hmm. so immediately you can see in two very different cultures that could that that, that could affect people in really different ways. So maybe UK households end up more mouldy because they're not they're not as well ventilated, for instance. Um, and then, I mean, I, I think also that the, the fact that lots of different people experience this in different ways. So, I mean, one of, the, one of the things I think really hasn't been done is thinking about this from a health perspective. So potentially prescribing extra um, income or extra money towards uh, energy costs, for instance, or mm-hmm. prescribing energy efficiency for for people who really need it. So people who sit still all day because of their health condition and therefore get really cold and and can't and can't necessarily regulate their own body temperature. They they they're in the same houses as we are. <laughs> and actually, why why is that? You know, because in some mm-hmm. ways they deserve the first access to some to 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 a warm home in order to be able to to live better with the with the health condition that they have. So I think thinking a bit more creatively around uh-huh. um, how different kinds of departments can intervene in this way would be would be really helpful. 
Um, we've just finished a piece of work on disability, actually. Um, myself and a colleague, Diana Ivanova, um, it should be out in the next um, uh, few few months. It's uh, um, accepted with Nature Energy. And um, it, it's about the different um, uh, spending patterns of disabled people in the EU. And then also, uh, particularly then, the, the, the energy impacts of disabled people in the EU. They use a lot less energy than mm-hmm. non-disabled people. And, um, and as a result, that probably means they're missing out on stuff <laughs> because, I mean, richer people use more energy than poorer people. It's as simple as that. And um, disabled people are poorer, but they also use disproportionately less energy because of their disabilities. And it, it's not I mean, it, to make a really just transition, we need to make sure that those people are brought with in a way that allows them to live better lives, to, yeah. to live lives where they do have access to, to the kinds of opportunities that non-disabled people have as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While I was preparing this interview, I came across one interesting paper that you have published a, 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 a bit of time ago on uh, energy poverty metrics. And I saw that you suggested actually that energy poor people should even be engaged in policy design themselves. Um, so I think this is a really interesting proposal. They are, of course, in the know of what is happening. Um, but but I, from my point of view, not really knowing the everyday life of an energy poor, I would think that those people have other worries in their daily life and, and other conflicts to cope with. So how could such an engagement really look like? So in, in the Netherlands, our suggestion to the, the Dutch government about this has been to monitor um, their policy in the lived experience. So to engage a panel of people who um, they meet with on a regular basis, perhaps yearly, a panel that's representative of the types of people that experience this problem in the Netherlands. So there would need to be single parents on there. There would need to be um, most likely disabled people, older people, and and that they they revisit that panel. Um, I mean, when when you do these kind of studies, you tend to pay people to do that kind of work. And so it becomes they become a, a sort of a, a group of people that get consulted about okay, policy nice. um, uh-huh. on a regular basis. That's a way of kind of minimizing the effort. Having said that, there's some really great examples of, of more, I suppose, a bit more radical um approaches to this in the UK. So um, in the UK, there's there's a group called the Apple Collective, who are um, uh, a group of people who are, are poor, effectively, mm-hmm. and who, who are happy to talk about their poverty and want to talk about their poverty in order to change policy. And it, it's been, I mean, it's been set up as a um, as a collective, so as a as a um, sort of cooperative institution, and having those kinds of organisations um, uh, um, or supporting those kind of organisations, perhaps facilitating those kind of organisations, could be a really great thing. Particularly because the people involved in those in those projects will will get a lot out of it, right? They'll have they'll have an opportunity to have their say, and the the right kind of people who want to do that kind of work will 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 come along to those kinds of, of organisations. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas, I mean, I think um, it, otherwise there is this huge toll on people. I mean, it's a bit it's very similar to the idea that um, around uh, racial inequality where, you know, um, black and minority ethnic people are constantly 
um, called upon to almost like represent themselves and tell us their experiences you you know it's not really fair because it yeah. means it's, it's really emotionally exhausting and but if there are ways of making it pay for instance and making uh-huh. it and making it less emotionally exhausting I think that's that's really helpful so the the the, the kind of lived ex- monitoring the lived experience um at a po- policy for policymakers is one way of doing that because actually the the level of um of you know it might take an hour and a bit of someone's life every year it's not it's not that big an investment from people um and if they can also then start to see returns from it that's that could be a really positive thing to be involved in for people yeah let me at this point um bring you to uh, like let's say a connected topic all all this is happening behind the background of yeah the energy transition that we already mentioned and the shift to renewables um i know that this is not exactly your topic but did you come across examples where energy communities manage to engage energy poor households and to really uh work together on new innovative energy uh solutions around renewables um yeah um there, there's there are um there are interesting examples of that actually yeah it can be challenging to start with um i talked before about how just because a house a house is energy efficient doesn't mean that the people know how to live in it in an energy efficient way um so um to give an example of um uh you know if you have an air source heat pump it um heats your house in a very different way to a gas boiler And um, that means you have to understand that <laughs> in order to get the best out of that air source heat pump. And um, so, so one of the, I think, key things of, about this is, is really kind of explaining technological innovations in a way that people can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some really interesting research done around solar PV and, and I think solar hot water being introduced into, um, into council housing, so social housing in the UK, And how it takes quite a while before people really absorb it in their life. Um, so the assumption is really when you fit, let's say, um, uh, so let's say you fit solar PV in a, on a social housing block. The assumption is that people will think about when they use it and think, oh, it's sunny today. I'll do the washing. You know, that kind mm-hmm. of connection, those kind yeah. of connections will be made. But you have to make connections like that for people sometimes in order to really Uh, let them get the most out of it so in this particular case I think it was solar PV on council housing where um, when on sunny days they got some of the energy for free and so mm-hmm. if, you, if you did do washing on a sunny day you could dry it outside mm-hmm. <laughs> and also you would be not paying for that for that wash cycle and so there was there was um, people were learning over time mm-hmm. that that was a good thing to do but not everybody gets it and it does depend who it is right because if you if you're out at work all day You, you might not have the opportunity to do that. That's not always yeah. an opportunity for everyone. So I think there is a there is a, a really important aspect of sort of understanding how people make decisions around things and and how people understand the technology. Really, um, is very important for 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 us in thinking about this this um, energy transition. Certainly, hmm. it's a long process, anyways, to raise awareness on those topics and really to make sure that people manage to change behavior on the mid-term or long run so um, I think uh, tackling this issue is is both an individual yeah has to to take place on on the individual level but also on on the collective level as we were saying before when we talked about policy design Um, so 
Absolutely. Yeah. The difference then, you're right, that is the common problem, isn't it? But I suppose the difference with energy poor households is that risk is really is is really kind of highly perceived. So mm -hmm. the risk of changing technology could be too much for somebody to to agree to because they know uh -huh. their their current technology. You see this a lot with energy supplier. So people don't change supplier because the one that they're with has been okay. You know, they've never really, mm. they've never cut me off or they've never. And so there's that sort of mentality of change being very risky because you don't know, you don't know what, no, what comes next. Yeah. Uh -huh. Even if someone tells you this is going to be cheaper, this is going to be warmer. You, mm. you don't necessarily believe them because it's much more about, well, what I have now isn't that bad. You know, maybe I just stick with that because it's less risky. So mm -hmm. there's that added barrier, I suppose, with energy poor households. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Lucy, we already have to get to the end, unfortunately. Um, do you have one final piece of advice or just like a sentiment that you'd want to share before we end this conversation? And essentially something maybe that the cities that are listening um, to this podcast and that we're working with might take up on their own journey um, along to tackle energy poverty in their cities? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, the, to some extent, this is a common problem around the EU, but I think it's really worth finding out what your specific problem is. So who is it particularly that suffers in your community? What, which kind of energy service are they short of? Is it heat? Is it warmth? Is it, um, sorry, is it warmth? Is it cooling? <coughs> Excuse me. Is it access to electricity? So thinking about who who is struggling here, what is it that they're short of? And it will be different according to which city that you're in and which part of the EU that you're in. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the ways of finding that out is through some research. So, so like I say, um, find out what the problem is in your city. What is it that, who is it that's experiencing this the most? And and then find out what they want to do about sorting it out because it's really helpful to get people's insights that are actually experiencing the problem. What would they like? Um, mm -hmm. And marry that together with the sort of broader goals of the energy transition and I think we can we can start to do a good job there excellent well I think that's really a, a very very uh, helpful advice and I hope that um, the people that are listening to us will manage to to kind of transform that into some con concrete actions in their in their place thanks a lot Lucy for sharing your really important work I think um, it's really precious what you're doing both for the energy poor and for energy poverty policies that will hopefully um, improve at the EU and at the national level. Um, I'd say we need more people like you who are passionate about linking social justice with energy issues. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for shedding light on this complex topic here on City Stories. Thank you for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. Today's episode was brought to you by the EU project Empower. Empower explores how cities and citizens can manage the energy transition together in a fair, clean and democratic way. Participation can happen at various stages, from involving citizens, local NGOs or businesses in the policy design, to any stage of the energy value chain, for example, as shareholders or even prosumers. The Empower project gets funding from the European Horizon 2020 program. Go to the website municipalpower.org to learn more about Empower.
And don't forget to regularly check out Energy Cities website energy-cities.eu. We provide you with political updates and great stories around the energy transition in Europe. energy-cities.eu